0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 109. Biblical Figures in Islam, part 19. The New Testament, the Sources, part 3. The Gospel of Pseudo Matthew. By the year 600, and probably before that, either orally or conceptually, someone or some people they decided that the existing details regarding Jesus's early life were insufficient. They wanted more details, more stuff, better stories. And the resulting invention of this impulse was the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew. This is an infancy gospel, you know, meaning it's mostly about, you know, the holy family and the child Jesus, but More than that, it's also an expansion on the earlier Infancy Gospels that we have discussed previously. Now, I'm assuming that very few people are familiar with this work, the Gospel of Matthew. So I'll have to just go over it a little bit for you, just uh, as a courtesy. If you know this stuff, great. But I have to summarize it at least a little. I just can't assume it's general knowledge. The pseudo-Matthew, it's long. And reading it would actually take a few hours. So obviously, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not even going to summarize the whole thing, because the content of this isn't all that different than the Proto-Evangelium of James, which we went over before. Now, it's similar at least until the point where the Holy Family flees Herod. So that's kind of where I'll start with this. You know, I'll just give you an idea of what is in this thing after the events that we have already discussed from the proto-evangelium of James. Now, James, James stopped when Herod was getting ready to go on his baby killing spree. So We'll pick up the Gospel of Pseudo Matthew as the Holy Family is fleeing Egypt. And I'll just give you a short summary of it from that point on. So we have the flight to Egypt. Now, they go to Egypt, and it's a very dangerous journey. There's lions and panthers, and in this version, dragons. So the dragons don't actually hurt the Holy Family or their companions, but really not because they didn't want to, but because they adored the baby Jesus for whatever reason. And it talks about that. And the same thing happened with the lions and the panthers. You know, there was something about this baby Jesus that made them override their previous nature so they didn't go on hurting anybody or really anything. So you have this, it's almost like a a bizarre Pixar movie where you know all these animals are going on this journey together and it's a mix of animals that just shouldn't exist you know so the group marches on complete with a bizarre mix of all these animals lions and panthers and wolves and sheep and oxen and, and dragons so this crew three days later they're walking through the desert and Mary seeks shade under a palm tree. Now, Mary laments just how high the fruit of this palm tree is because they are so hungry. So, Jesus orders the palm tree to bend so they can pick its fruit. And it does exactly that. And then Jesus tells it to gush water from its roots. And it does that. Enough so that the people and the cattle and all these things that are around... Everyone can have a nice drink and refill their water skins. And as a reward to this particular tree, Jesus orders some angels to take one of the palm branches directly up to heaven. Now, at this point, the group was actually looking at another 30 days journey, but God shortens it to one day. So they are moved forward, kind of like in that game Candyland, you know, where you pull the right card and you're basically, boom, you're right at the end. So the Holy Family is in Egypt, you know, right away. And they walk into a pagan temple. And as soon as they walk in, they find that all of the idols had already been shattered. I mean, even before they got there, you know, they felt this presence coming. So the pagan priests come in. And they realize, oh, wow, this is the true God. And they convert on the spot. To what exactly it doesn't, I don't think it actually says, but I think it's assumed Christianity, even before Christianity exists. The whole city actually converts. Now, part of that is, you know, they recalled the story, hey, we don't want to end up like Pharaoh in the time of Moses. Now, at this point, the Holy Family gets word that, hey, it's safe to return home. There's no aside on why this magical child who stops dragons would have ever feared men in the first place, but they go home because it's safe. And then there is this story where Jesus gets angry and he kills a boy. Keep in mind, this is still the child Jesus. And then he brings that boy back to life. I think we went over that in an earlier episode. And then another familiar story, Jesus making the 12 birds of clay and bringing them to life. And another episode where he makes pools of clay along the Jordan River. But someone destroys those and Jesus appears to kill him. Then another boy touches him roughly and Jesus kills him and then brings that boy back to life. And Joseph just doesn't know what to do with this powerful child. Joseph takes him to a teacher who can't really teach Jesus anything because Jesus is God. So, they do it again, and a similar thing happens with a teacher named Levi. And then the family goes to Nazareth, where there is more trouble. A boy falls from a rooftop, and he dies, and Jesus is accused of doing it. So, Jesus goes up to the corpse and says, hey, corpse, did I push you off the roof? No, says the dead body. And then that person may or may not have come back to life. And then the family goes to Jericho, and Jesus performs a miracle by carrying water in his cloak, and increasing the wheat crops. Jesus then plays with a group of lions to the astonishment of the people. And Jesus performs a miracle to help Joseph with a carpentry project, and then they decide to try to send Jesus to another teacher. And that teacher became frustrated enough to actually hit Jesus, and that teacher promptly dropped dead. Then they try another teacher, who basically declares Jesus the Lord of the universe, so that went better than usual, but I'm not sure he actually taught him anything. So then the family goes to Capernaum, and Jesus raises another person from the dead. And then they go to Bethlehem. And there, one day, Jesus' brother James, the, the firstborn of Joseph, presumably before his marriage to Mary, James is bitten on the hand by a viper. So James is writhing in pain, and Jesus hears this and breathes on James's hand, and it instantly cools. James is okay, and the viper drops dead. The family lives for a while in peace in Bethlehem, and this is basically how it ends. So like I said, I'm not going to read the whole thing. That's the summary, just to familiarize you with this work. But I will actually read a few chapters here, those being the ones that are relevant to the Quranic version of the Nativity. But before I do that, just let me read the Quranic verse that allegedly comes from this source and you know the basic basis for the Islamic nativity. And we can read it again afterward, but I just think you should have an idea of what the Quran is talking about. So It's also, I mean, it's short. And second of all, it gives elements of a story that most Christians have never heard because it's not in the canonical Gospels. Okay, so here's the Quran. Uh, Not surprisingly, this is the Surah of Mary, that's Surah 19, verses 23 to 26. Now, this is the relevant part of the Islamic nativity story, not the whole thing but that's been well covered in previous episodes. You know, I just want you to be familiar with the themes that are also in the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew. So here are those verses from the Quran. Then the pains of labor drove her to the trunk of a palm tree. She cried, Alas, I wish I had died before this. And this was a thing long forgotten. So a voice reassured her from below her, Do not grieve. Your Lord has provided a stream at your feet, and shake the trunk of this palm tree towards you. It will drop fresh, ripe dates upon you. So eat and drink, and put your heart at ease. But if you see any of the people say, I have vowed silence to the most compassionate, in other words, she should say, I, Mary, have vowed silence to the most compassionate. So I am not talking to anyone today. So keep all that in mind. It's all non-canonical stuff. Obviously, Mary goes to a palm tree, God comforts her and provides for her. It's not super detailed, but God provides the fruits of the palm tree to her, which presumably would have been out of reach otherwise. Again, nothing like what's in the Bible. But here is that episode in the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew. And keep in mind, This is in the midst of the flight to Egypt. So Jesus is already born. This isn't a nativity scene like it is in the Quran, So it's a slightly different time. All right. Here's the two chapters that deal with the palm tree. uh, Chapters 20 and 21, if you ever want to look them up. I'm just going to read chapter 20. And it came to pass on the third day of their journey. While they were walking that the Blessed Mary was fatigued by the excessive heat of the sun in the desert. And seeing a palm tree, she said to Joseph, Let me rest a little under the shade of this tree. So Joseph therefore made haste and led her to the palm. And as the Blessed Mary was sitting there, she looked up to the foliage of the palm and saw it full of fruit and said to Joseph, I wish it were possible to get some of the fruit of this palm. And Joseph said to her, I wonder if, you know, you say this, you know, well, you see how high the palm tree is and you think of eating this fruit. know, but I, I'm thinking more of water because the skins are now empty and we have none to refresh ourselves and our cattle. And then the child Jesus with a joyful countenance reposing in the bosom of his mother said to the palm o tree bend thy branches and refresh my mother with thy fruit and immediately at these words the palm bent its top down to the very feet of the blessed mary and they gathered from it fruit with which they were all refreshed and after they had gathered all its fruit it remained bent down waiting the order to rise from him who had commanded it to stoop Then Jesus said to it, Raise yourself, O palm tree, and be strong, and be the companion of my trees, which are in paradise of my Father, and open thy roots a vein of water which has been hidden in the earth, and let the waters flow, so that we may be satisfied from you. And it rose up immediately, the tree that is, and at its root there began uh, began to flow forth a spring of water, exceedingly clear and cool and sparkling. And when they saw the spring of water, they rejoiced with great joy and were satisfied, themselves and all their cattle and all the beasts, so everybody gets this. Wherefore they gave thanks to God. It then goes on with another chapter of how wonderful and blessed this palm tree was, and how an angel took one of its branches to heaven. So, that's a more detailed version of how Mary was provided food from a palm tree along with water. Miraculous palm, fruit, and water. Now, here's the Quranic version again. Then the pains of labor drove Mary to the trunk of a palm tree. She cried, Alas, I wish I had died before this, and this was a thing long forgotten. So a voice reassured her from below her, do not grieve, your Lord has provided a stream at your feet, and shake the trunk of this palm tree towards you, it will drop fresh ripe dates upon you. So eat and drink and put your heart at ease, but if you see any of the people say, I have vowed silence to the most compassionate, so I am not talking to anyone today. So you can see some similarities and some differences. First of all, they both have a palm tree and some water providing sustenance for Mary that she desperately needed. This seems like something that is likely beyond coincidence, but there are many differences too. There is the setting. The Quran is a nativity scene, while Suda Matthew is during the flight to Egypt. And the order of food and water are reversed. The Quran does the water first, Pseudo Matthew, second. And the action is different. In the Quran, Mary shakes the palm tree. In Pseudo Matthew, the tree just bends down to allow her to pick the fruit. And then there's the most interesting difference it's who is performing the miracle. Pseudo Matthew has the baby Jesus commanding the palm tree. This is his miracle. Jesus tells the palm tree to lower itself. Jesus tells it to release water from its roots. But in the Quran, well, God does it. Not only because of basic Muslim sensibilities, but also the major historical difference. The Quran is telling the nativity story. Jesus is still in the womb. Now, if you want to get technical, yes, God is acting in both. In any Christian gospel, apocryphal or otherwise, Jesus is God. So God is performing the miracle, just like God is performing the miracle in the Quran. But on a more surface, more obvious level, these are very different things. And then, of course, there is the ever-present difference between any gospel, canonical or apocryphal, between any gospel and the Quran here, and that would be the person of Joseph. In the Quran, Joseph is just cut out. He's removed from the picture entirely. Mary and the child inside her are the only people out in the desert in the Quran. She has no companionship until Jesus is born, and certainly no husband. So, once again, we see this pattern. You have a Quranic story that is similar to an Apocryphal Gospel, but with Joseph completely removed from it. And in the case of Pseudo-Matthew, the difference is even more stunning. Because, unlike the previous Apocryphal Gospels we discussed, this one dates to around the time of Muhammad. Uh, Around the time he began to receive revelations and start his ministry and his religion. Now that's not a very long time for a story to be naturally changed that much in a short period of time, regardless of which came first. So is pseudo-Matthew actually the origin of the Quranic story? You don't know. You just, you don't know. I mean, especially when you're looking at history and religion to a certain extent, too, sometimes you just have to be comfortable with, I don't know. You know, where the story actually came from, it really is not knowable and probably never will be. Not with any level of certainty, unless some written copy of something earlier was found. And I'm not sure it has been. I don't think it has. Like with James, first off, this is not named after its author. There is no way, I can say this with certainty, there's no way that Matthew, as in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, there's no chance he wrote this. None. It is thought to be written around the time Muhammad started his religion. You know, that's around 610, give or take a decade or two. Now, unlike the Quran, there is no hard Fast date on when this actually came to be, you know, the, where the actual origin of this document, and you know, it came to be pseudo Matthew that is in its somewhat final form, maybe around the year 800. So that means it was born and evolved from say around 600 to 800. So you see the problem there, (laughs) for what we're talking about. With that kind of time span, it's entirely possible that the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew and the Quran were actually sources for each other. Maybe Pseudo-Matthew gave the Quran source material from its original version, or maybe the Quran played a role in the final story of Pseudo-Matthew. At least, the part about the palm tree, of course. (laughs) I mean... It's not super likely, but I I just, you can't dismiss anything as as totally impossible in this as far as sort of the give and take between the Quran and pseudo-Matthew. Now that said, um, I'll give you my ignorant opinion because, you know, why the heck not? I think the most likely scenario in my mind is that there is a common source out there that contributed to both, meaning both Pseudo-Matthew and the Quran, And I'm not talking about the Proto-Evangelium of James, you know, at least for the palm tree story. I'm not an expert. You know, I I don't have university resources anymore. You know, I can't dive into ancient manuscripts or anything. But again, it does seem unlikely that something could have been written in the Christian world. I'm talking about Pseudo-Matthew here. It seems unlikely that this could have been written in the Christian world and then find itself into the Quran just a few years later. That just seems a bit too fast. So I actually think the common source might be something out there we just don't know about. Something unknown. Something that back in the day was in the cultural ether of that part of the world. Something... It was just natural in the stories that were told around the waterholes of Arabia or maybe the outskirts of Byzantium, you know, among <laughs> the expelled heretics. You know, I don't know. And maybe for centuries. So for me, that seems the most likely place that this story about the palm tree originated. Perhaps that is the source for pseudo-Matthew and the story being referenced by the Quran. Of course, again, you you can't prove any of this. There's no manuscripts, and you know if people don't write things down, honestly, they just sort of disappear. But that doesn't mean they didn't once exist. We just don't know about them. Now, the Quran, keep in mind, is mostly a sermon. It's not an academic work with historical footnotes. <laughs> which kind of adds to the depth of the mystery. So we have to fill in the blanks and that's simply going to be impossible without um, what you could say is divine knowledge or omniscient knowledge. There's just some things you can't do with any kind of high accuracy. And this is one of them. Really, the most we can do is to just point out the interesting familiarities and speculate on what exactly the Quran is referencing here, and whether or not the Gospel of Suda-Matthew is or was involved. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.